The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. One of the most hostile encounters that Jesus ever had with his own people, that is the Jews, is found in John chapter 8. And as we begin this morning, I'd like to invite you to open up your Bible with me there. Please open up to John chapter 8 and look at verse 12. After preaching two sermons from chapter 1 of John's gospel for our Christmas services, I couldn't resist but to preach one more sermon from this particular passage. Ultimately, we're headed back to John chapter 1. But first, consider with me John chapter 8 and the well-known verse, uh, that is verse 12. Look with me in your own copy of God's Word at it. It says this, And then Jesus spoke again to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees here immediately take issue with what Jesus said. Verse 13 continues, So the Pharisees said to him, You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees continues in this passage down through verse 30. Verse 20 informs us the setting for this dialogue was in the temple. And the result was that many believed. And we find that in verse 30. Look at it, chapter 8, verse 30. And As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And if you're familiar with John's gospel whatsoever, you'll know that this word believe or believing is really a key word. It occurs some 98 times, believe or believing. Near the end of John's gospel, John tells us why he in fact wrote this gospel. He says in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, These things have been written to you who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that may believing you may have life in his name. I've written these things to you who believe, so that in believing you may have life in his name. That refers to eternal life. Believing in Christ results in eternal life. But in John's gospel, alongside true saving belief, John also presents to us a kind of belief that does not save, that does not lead to eternal life. In John's gospel, there's clearly such a thing as a superficial form of believing, a temporary believing, a type of believing that does not result in eternal life. We see this, for example, in John chapter 8, verse 31. So look at this. It says, so Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Notice here that Jesus is speaking to the Jews who believed in him. That's what it says. On some level, they believed, but they were also still in bondage. They were not free based upon Jesus' words. And so look at how the Jews respond in verse 33. They answered and said to him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? This is what they say to him, continues in verse 34. Jesus answered, truly I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know 
I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you speak from your father. So notice here that these were, again, they're believing Jews, but Jesus says, you're seeking to kill me, and he says specifically that my word has no place in you. And this then continues into the verse we just read, verse 38, where he says, you are doing the thing from your father. Interesting language. Notice what he points out here, that the Jews and Jesus don't have the same father. Look again at verse 38. I speak the things which I've seen with my father, therefore you also do the things you've heard from your father. Okay, so two different fathers here. And this will become the focus of the discussion that follows. The Jews will claim that they are really the children of Abraham, but Jesus ultimately disagrees with them. Look at verse 39. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who's told you the truth, which you heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and, the, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe. Jesus says this all to the group who earlier had believed. And now Jesus is telling us they don't believe. Which is it? In fact, Jesus goes on to say that you're actually the children of the devil. He says, you are of your father, the devil. The Jews, of course, were infuriated by this, but it was true. They were not children of Abraham in the ultimate sense. They were children, nor were they children of God. They were children of the devil, Jesus says. And in verse 42, Jesus makes it clear the necessary condition for being a child of God. He said there, if God were your father... You would love me. I mean, there it is. There's what we might call the sine qua non of being a Christian, the absolute essential condition of genuine Christianity. It's love for Christ. A Christian can be recognized by their love for Christ. A love for Christ identifies one as a Christian. People may say they love Jesus. Many people, in fact, say they love Jesus. But that, that love is never manifested in their life with any time spent with Jesus. Little time spent in the Word of God. No deep meditation upon the, the person and work of Christ. Little time spent in prayer. Minimal time spent in fellowship with the bride of Christ, the church. So yeah, today many people superficially love Christ, just as many of these Jews superficially believed in Jesus. So Jesus pointed out to the Jews that they were in fact not children of God, but were children of the devil. 
And what needs no explanation here is that those who are children of the devil are on the same eternal trajectory as the devil. In other words, they will not inherit eternal life. They'll be cast into the lake of fire. The children of the devil will not experience eternal life. They'll, theirs will be eternal hellfire. That's really the most frightening reality of the whole universe. People, after all, are eternal beings, eternal souls, eternally existence, eternal existence either experiencing the blessings of fellowship with God or eternally suffering under the wrath of God. It's amazing how quickly we forget this ultimate reality of mankind that just seems to sort of just dwell just beyond the surface of our consciousness. We get wrapped up in the mundane cares of this world, getting distracted from this ultimate reality of life. All men are either headed for an eternity with Christ in glory or they're headed for an eternity in hell. We so easily forget that the people we daily interact with, if, we, if they don't come to know Jesus Christ and humbly submit to him faith, they will spend eternity in hell. And so one must become a child of God. Becoming a child of God is absolutely critical. It's really the most important reality of this life. The, the key question all of us should ask is, am I a child of God? Or am I a child of Satan? Am I a child of God? And those are the only two categories that exist, by the way. In the Bible, there's only two options. You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan. In reality, in ultimate sea, there's no children of Abraham. There's no children of Muhammad. There's no children of Joseph Smith. There's, there's not even any children of Taylor Swift, per se. No, it's either a child of God or a child of the devil. All of humanity fits into one of those camps. 1 John 3.10 makes that explicitly clear. It says there, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So John here provides us with two pieces of evidence in John 3.10 that can help us distinguish which party we're in. If one is wondering whether or not they are a child of God or a child of the devil, which is an absolutely great question to ask oneself, then they really must consider 1 John 3.10. It says this, By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So in other words, children of Satan do two things. They practice unrighteousness. They live with sin. They live in a peacetime mindset with sin in their life. And they also have no love for Christians. In other words, they, they don't mind having sin in their life. They're, they're, they're comfortable disobeying God, even if it's in just the small corners of their life. And they, and they don't mind being out of fellowship with other Christians. They're sort of lone ranger Christians who seem to have no need for intimacy with fellow Christians. That means they don't practice the one another commands of Scripture. They, they hardly maybe even know another Christian, or they don't know anyone deep enough to really know another Christian on a heart level. They often neglect also the Lord's Day gathering of the church. And these two descriptions of the children of Satan could be added to the one that Jesus told the Jews in John chapter 8. The children of Satan have no 
love for Christ or a superficial love for Christ. So if you're examining your own life and you find minimal evidence of love for Christ and you see minimal love for other Christians in your life and you find patterns of disobedience, of sin in your life, then you should begin to suspect that you might in fact not be a child of God but a child of Satan which we would have to acknowledge is the starting place of all of us. Uh, We all start in this world, we all come into this world as children of the evil one. I, I cannot stress this truth enough. No one, hear me, no one is born as a Christian. Your parents might have been the most godly parents on the planet. Your parents and grandparents might have prayed over you diligent during your nine months stay in your mother's womb before you were even burned, or or you might even been baptized or so-called baptized right when you were born, sprinkled with water, but none of that, in fact, makes you a Christian. No one is born a child of God. According to the Bible, because of man's fallenness, we're all born as the spiritual prodigy of Satan. If you're unconvinced of this, let me just remind you of one passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Paul tells there the church of Ephesus, for you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You were led around by Satan, Paul tells them. He said you were, you were given over to the lusts of your flesh. And Paul says, among them we all too formerly lived, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, he says, children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. That's where we all begin. Therefore, no one is born a child of God. No one is born a Christian. Instead, every true Christian is a convert to Christianity. This might seem elementary to some, But on many occasions, I've asked professing Christians, when did you become a Christian? Tell me, how did you become a Christian? And the answer comes around, well, I think I've always been a Christian. It's like, no, you haven't. You haven't always been a Christian. If you're truly a Christian today, you became a Christian. You became a child of God. You converted to Christianity. You were born again by the Spirit of God. And in that moment, you became a child of God. And that's really what I'd like us to focus on this morning. That is, how does one become a child of God? How does one move from the natural default category that we're all born into, the category of being a child of Satan, to the category of being a child of God? This is the critical question that should be on the hearts and minds of the entire world. But sadly, it's often sorely neglected and never asked. Or if it's asked, it's answered with a horribly false answer. Satan employs many devices to keep his offspring, to keep his children from ever becoming the children of God. Satan is really working fastidiously to keep his subjects in the darkness of their sin. Spirit of God, by contrast, is one by one overtaking souls, plundering the kingdom of, kingdom of darkness, one by one bringing souls into the kingdom of the beloved Son through the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. So 
Really, what better question could we be asking as we enter into a new year of Christian ministry, a new year to serve our Heavenly Father, but how does one become a child of God? And in John chapter 1, John sheds some light on this question. In fact, John provides for us three necessary conditions of becoming a child of God. Please turn over there with me to consider this. John chapter 1, and look with me beginning in verse 9. John chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, familiar words. There was true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our, our focus here will primarily be on verses 12 and 13. In verse 9, Jesus is the true light that has come into the world, enlightening all of mankind. And verse 9 does not mean that every man is salvifically enlightened. That is made clear in verses 10 and 11. Although everything was made through Christ, he's the creator of everything, as he's referred to in this passage, or we might call him the Word, that's his title here. Although the Word made everything and everyone, everyone does not know him. Verse 11 adds, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So, so the Word, the eternal Logos, Christ, came to the world that he created, but his own people, that is the Jews, they did not receive him. We've already seen this from John chapter 8. The Jews in Maine rejected the Messiah. And this brings us then to verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And note that here, this really, verse 12 carries on into verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. These two verses make up one sentence. And the goal or the pinnacle of these two verses comes in the middle of verse 12. Look there. To them he gave the right to become children of God. That's what all the other phrases in, these two, in this one sentence are pointing to. It's to this, to them. We said to some people, the word, that's the actor here, the subject. The word, he's the one doing the giving. Christ gave them the right to become children of God. He gave them the right. It's the word normally translated in our Bibles as authority. It's the Greek word exousia. It normally means the liberty or power to act. But here, the context makes clear that there's a different, lesser definition here that applies. That's what the word means. And here it means, it means right or privilege. John used this word similarly in Revelation 22, verse 13, where some are given privilege to the access of the tree of life. They're, they have the right or the privilege to go to the tree of life. And in John 1:12, it's the right or the privilege of becoming a child of God. Jesus is the one who issues this right to those who 
meet the three conditions here provided in this passage. And that, again, is what we're really focusing on here. That's what we're after. What are the conditions of becoming a child of God? What are these critically important things? Importance for our own salvation, importance for our own evangelistic witnessing, we should be aware of these things. Importance for our own parenting, thinking about our our children's relationship to the Lord. As we think about maybe a, a future spouse, all of these are critically important. These, again, are just the conditions necessary for becoming a child of God. And the first condition is simply this. It's receiving Christ. That's the first condition, receiving Christ. Look there. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This is not difficult to understand. To receive Christ means to welcome him and to welcome all of him, I might add. To welcome his person, to embrace his teaching, to accept his lordship into your life, to to commit to him as a disciple. It's a rather broad phrase, simply meaning to welcome Christ into your life and all of Christ, not rejecting any part of him, uh, taking him as a package deal, saying, ah, I'm embracing Christ. It's to welcome his authority in your life. It's to welcome, really, his death in your place, satisfying the wrath of God for your sins against God. So so in order to become a child of God, one must receive Christ. Sometimes the English word accept has been used here as a synonym. But I'm not sure that that's a good practice. The word accept seems to convey a transactional sense of accepting conditions or or accepting necessary terms as if one can just accept a set of facts and then move on with his life. That's not the idea here. It's to receive Christ. It's to welcome him and embrace him into your life in an ongoing sense. That's the first condition necessary for becoming a child of God. It's to receive Christ like a groom receives his bride on his wedding day. So ask yourself, have I met that condition? Have I welcomed Christ into my life? The second condition is similar. We find it at the end of verse 12. Look at it there with me. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So second condition is believing in his name. The English word even here near the end of verse 12 is added. It's not in the original language. That's why you'll find it in italics, perhaps, in some of your Bibles. The addition of the word even here may or may not be helpful in understanding the meaning of this passage. What that even is meant to convey is that in believing in his name, it's an explanation or, a, or another way of describing the first condition, which was receiving Jesus. To use a grammatical term, these first two conditions are in apposition to one another. The, the, the second explains the first and develops it. As you might have guessed, receiving Jesus and believing in his name are, are really related concepts. They're overlapping ideas, we might say. But sometimes well-meaning, enthusiastic evangelists 
anxious to explain the way of salvation to sinners will, will stress that little word even in their quoting of John 1.12 as if it's giving a, a minimal required. Even believe in his name. All you have to do is just believe in his name. But what that overlooks is that in the Gospel of John, believing is not a simple idea. It's not a simple concept. As we have already seen from John chapter 8, there are some who believe but are not true believers. They're temporary, superficial believers. I mean, in John chapter 8, they, they believe, but Jesus turns right around and tells them that they're the spawn of Satan. We see something similar in John chapter 2. Turn over just a page to the end of John chapter 2. See another passage of this sort of superficial belief. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So note here, many of the Jews were believing in his name. They believed in his name as they observed the signs. They were watching Jesus do miracles. Okay, I'm, I believe. But as Jesus goes on to say, he did not believe in them. It's interesting that the word translated entrusting is actually the verb pisteo in Greek. It's the word to believe. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them, is what the text is saying. Their faith was superficial. You find a similar kind of belief among the Jewish leaders in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. There it says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. These were certainly not true believers. They did not love Christ in an ultimate sense. The text says that they actually chiefly loved the approval of men. So we do not do anyone any favors when we minimalize this second condition found here in John 1.12. I mean, re return there, John 1.12. Look at it again. To as many received them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believing in his name cannot simply become just a box to be checked. It's not a simple little formula to be quoted to assure yourself that you're a Christian. Notice here that this word believe is in the present tense there at the end of verse 12. It's actually the only present tense in this sentence. It is a belief that endures and continues on into the present. So the second condition of verse 12 is to believe fully, we might say, in his, in his name. And to believe in his name is to believe and to trust in the character of Christ, to trust in his work, to trust who he is. It, it is a faith that throws oneself upon Christ as one's only hope of salvation. It is to realize that without Christ, you would suffer in hell for all eternity, for your sin and rebellion against God. It's a kind of belief that clings to Christ, like a man clings to a life preserver once he's been swept out to sea. He clings to it ruggedly. It is that kind of belief that endures. And we see this, for example, in John 8, verse 31, a passage we already looked at today. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, 
then you are truly disciples of mine. So true saving faith will endure. It will continue in Christ's works. This explains why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments in John 14, 15. True saving faith continues on, continues on into eternity. True saving faith will not run out. It will not peter out like the gas in your gas tank. It will keep going and enduring forever. And so that's the second condition here to become a child of God. It's to believe in his name. Again, it's very similar to the first condition, receiving Christ. There's some overlap in those terms. But the, condition, the conditions don't end there. The sentence, in, in fact, does not end there. I think many assume, actually, that the sentence does end there at the end of verse 12, but it does not. In fact, early in my Christian life, I was trained to share the gospel in a way that leaned heavily upon John 1.12. There was a little booklet that we used in evangelism, a gospel tract. It was called the Knowing God Personally booklet. It was called, we called it, in short, the KJP booklet. Another name for it was the Four Spiritual Laws. This past week, I downloaded it, and just to refresh my mind with that track, I found a downloaded, downloadable format online. But in the process of evangelism and using this resource, the fourth and final law that you present to the unbeliever says this. It says, quote, We must individually receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and his plan for our lives. And then it says, we must receive Christ. And then it quotes John 1.12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And while there's nothing overtly problematic with that presentation, and at least in what I've shared with you so far, it's strange that the second half of the verse is not quoted. Indeed, the second half of the sentence is not quoted. We say, well, well, what about John 1.13? For years, I used that booklet. I never thought to open up my Bible and look at John 1.13 and read the passage in its context. In verse 13, we find the third and final condition. And the third and final condition of becoming a child of God is being born of God. That's the final condition, being born of God. Look at it again, the whole passage. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. First, just examine with me a few things about this verb of the third condition. Who were born, or we might say in older English, who were begotten. Who were begotten. We might immediately guess this, this isn't referring to a natural birth. This is instead referring to a spiritual birth. If we're at all familiar with John's gospel, immediately our minds are going to be jumping to John chapter 3, which we read this morning. There Jesus confronted Nicodemus, one of the leading Pharisees, one of the leading religious teachers of his day, with these words. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And that second birth that Jesus referred to in John chapter 3 is the same birth that's here referred to. Note also, that, note also about the opening verb in verse 13 that it's in the past tense. Technically, it's in the Greek aorist tense 
signifying completed action. In this case, this birth has been completed in the past. Furthermore, it's in the passive voice, which if you know your grammar, that means the subject is not acting, but instead is being acted upon. And just for an example, to think of a passive verb for a moment, consider the delivery of a baby. Whenever a baby is delivered, the baby in the womb does not deliver themselves, right? Rather, they are delivered. That's the passive voice. Someone else delivers the baby. The baby, And so it is with the birthing process. When a child is born, they do not birth themselves. In the spiritual birth of John 1.13, the person who now has the privilege of becoming a child of God is spiritually birthed or spiritually begotten by God. God is the actor here. That's the last two words of verse 13. Of God. They're born of God. So we're talking about the supernatural spiritual birth carried out by God himself. And it's this of God birth that is then qualified by these three descriptive negative phrases in verse 13. Look at this. So important. In order to become a child of God, these are the, this third condition must be true, and it's qualified in three ways who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. So in order to become a child of God, a birth is needed, and this birth certainly is not the result of three things. First, it's not of blood. Not of blood. Literally, not of bloods is how it reads in the original. We might say not of bloodline, not of natural descent. This birth does not come through natural descent from human descent, we might say. This spiritual birth is wrought by God, and it's not the same as a human natural birth. Jesus himself explained this in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, the natural human birthing process is entirely different than the spiritual birth here referred to. Which means that, again... No one is born into this world as a child of God. Naturally, no one inherits the kingdom of God by just natural birthright. It doesn't work that way. Everyone needs to be born for a second time, to be born in a spiritual sense. But that natural birthing process has nothing to do with the spiritual birth. It's not of blood. Again, you might have been born to the most devout selfless, Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, missionary martyrs, but that will not affect your own spiritual condition before God. The spiritual birth is not of blood, and nor does the spiritual birth come as a result of, secondly, the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh. Interesting language. We might assume flesh here refers to something sinful. The Apostle Paul normally uses flesh in a in a way to connote this natural fallen inclination that exists in mankind. But that's not how John uses the term. For John, the term flesh is a a neutral term. It simply means human. It refers to the, the physical nature of mankind as weak and fragile, but not necessarily sinful. That's not how he uses it. We see this, for example, in the very next verse. Look at Verse 14 again, and the word, that's Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. So the word, Jesus, 
did not become sinful in the incarnation. At the end of his life, he would carry the sins of the world, but in his incarnation, there was no sin. So flesh, in verse 13, does not refer to anything sinful. We find a similar truth taught in John 6, verse 63, where it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Humanness profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh provides no benefit to the spiritual birth. The spiritual birth is not the result of the will of the flesh. We might best translate this. The spiritual birth is not the result of human desire. It's not the result of human decision. This means that the true child of God does not decide to birth himself into the kingdom. One does not say, I'm choosing to become a Christian, and boom, I'm birthing myself into the kingdom. It's not of the will of the flesh. This is the second negative description of what, the will, what this of God birth is not. It does not come by the will of the flesh. Practically, this means you cannot decide yourself into Christianity. You cannot will yourself into the kingdom of God. The final negative description of the spiritual birth is found near the end of the verse. It says, it's not of the will of man. Not of the will of man. There, there are two Greek terms that can be translated into English as man. This is the word on air in the Greek. It just refers to man. But there's a much more common term for man. That's the term anthropos. You might recognize the English term anthropology from it. John uses the term anthropos 59 times in this gospel. On air is much less commonly employed by John. It's only found eight times. And one of those times is here in verse 13. It, it means man, but it usually means husband. The vast majority of the times we find on air in John's writing, it in fact refers to a husband. We find this word on air used uh, twice in John 4 verse 17 when Jesus speaks with a Samaritan woman at the well. He instructs her to call her on air. Go call your husband. But she, she, she responds, I have no on air. I have no husband. Jesus continues using it. Jesus then says, you have correctly said I have no on air. For you've had five on airs and the one whom you now have is not your on air, not your husband. These are all uses of the on air and they're all translated normally as husband. And this is the same term that we find in John 1.13. The term means, again, uh, means man in contrast to woman, or naturally, husband. And I think husband here fits best. That means the spiritual birth is not the result of the will of the husband. You might say, well, that seems a little bit of odd or out of place. But it wouldn't have been in the ancient Near Eastern culture where it was the man who was primarily seen as the one in control of the decision to have children or whom to have children with. And it was the will of the patriarch that drove the decision-making process around who to marry and who to have children with. So it's not the will of the man of the patriarch to decide who he's going to marry and who he's going to have children. The new birth is not like that. The translators of the Net Bible translated verse 13 as referring to children, quote, not, bo not born by human parents or by human desire 
or by a husband's decision, but by God, end quote. One of the best commentators on the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson, translated this verse similarly. He said this, quote, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So in order to be a child of God, you must be spiritually birthed. Or as Jesus calls it, you must be born again. And this new birth does not come as a result of natural descent, nor does it come as a result of human decision, nor is it a husband's demand, but it rather is of God. Those are the last two words again of verse 13. This is the spiritual birth that everyone needs, and it's a direct direct result of the will of God. Verse 13 is simply a very emphatic way of saying The spiritual birth that is absolutely necessary for every person on the planet is not a product of man's willing or wishing. Man cannot manipulate his own birth. A man cannot decide himself to be born again. He certainly cannot decide for someone else to be born again. As much as I would love to do so, I cannot will my children into the kingdom of God, and nor can you. You simply cannot do it. The new birth is a result of God and God alone. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And the implications of this truth are absolutely massive in our day. If this is sitting with you uncomfortably, just look at God's word. Let God speak to you through his word. In theological language, verse 13 makes clear that regeneration... That's the theological term, is entirely an act of God. The new birth is an act of God alone. Man is helpless to initiate or participate in his own spiritual birth. Man is passive. In fact, Scripture tells us that man is a corpse. He cannot decide to become a Christian. He cannot perform a religious duty to make himself a Christian. The new birth is a gift from God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't do it yourself, it's by his doing. So now if we just zoom out on this whole passage here, we have three conditions. In order to become a child of God, one must receive Christ, one must believe in his name, and one must be born of God. All three of those conditions are necessary. Christ will not give you or anyone else the right of becoming a child of God unless all three of those things are true of you. And so in evangelism with unbelievers, we might include all of those three things. We might say all of those things. We might tell them, look, you you must receive Christ. Or we might say, you must believe in his name. Or we might do as Jesus did to Nicodemus, you must be born again. We could say all those things. That's true. Every human on the planet needs all three of those things. You must be born again. You must be born by the Spirit of God. Again, that's outside of you. Now, a question that might come to your mind here, of these three conditions, how do they relate to one another? Uh, That's an important question. How do they work together? Do they occur in unison? Do all three of these things just fire together? Or do they occur in a sequence? Is there kind of a chain reaction? What comes first, the the new birth or believing? 
Does regeneration precede believing? Or does believing precede regeneration? And does faith produce the new birth, we might say? Or does the new birth produce faith? That's really a critical question. And frankly, I think it's a question that every Christian should seek to answer. It's critically important. That will tell you a lot about what you think about God as to how you answer that question. Every, every Christian should seek a biblical answer to this question. What comes first? Now, examining these two verses, John 1.12 and verse 13, we find these conditions, and they're primarily given to us just both in the aorist tense, receiving Christ and believing. Again, those are related ideas, largely synonymous. So that the necessary preconditions of becoming a child of God are receiving or believing in Christ and being born of God. There's no chronological order given to the grammar of this verse or this sentence. John does not here present us with a, a sequence, doesn't specify, but just strictly speaking by the grammar. We might assume that believing is the catalyst of regeneration. I think that's naturally how we might think. Well, first we believe, and that sparks the new birth. And this is the assumption, by the way, made by that Knowing God Personally book that I was telling you about. I was somewhat stunned this week to read in that booklet these words. It said this, quote, When we receive Christ, we experience a new birth. And the clear implication is that receiving Christ causes the new birth. And then it adds these words. We receive Christ through personal invitation. So personal invitation leads to receiving Christ, which then leads to the new birth. And then it quotes Revelation 3.20. Behold, Jesus' words, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. That's where they get the personal invitation. Tragically, that's very unbiblical and out of context, the use of Revelation 3.20. And in fact, this all is just tragically wrong. John 1.13 has already made it clear to us that the will of the flesh cannot produce the new birth. Therefore, personal invitation will not invoke the new birth. We're told specifically. It is the work of God. So even by personally inviting Jesus into your heart, it's not an ipso facto guarantee that you will be born again. The supernatural birth is a work of God. That's John's whole point here. That's the point of verse 13. The point of the verse that many people leave out. Jesus, that's Jesus' whole point to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus tells Nicodemus, look, Nicodemus, you need to be born again, and guess what? You can't do it yourself. It's outside of you. In verse 8, he says, it's like the wind. You can't control it. You can't manipulate it. It's outside of you. So no, personal invitation does not cause regeneration. Believing does not produce regeneration. The booklet has it exactly wrong. In the Bible, regeneration leads to saving faith. I believe this can be seen in verse 13. A sinner can try to believe all he wants, but at the end of the day, if God does not open his heart and grant him eyes of faith and cause him to be born again, he will not become a child of God. So I believe we can see the order of regeneration before believing in verse 13, but John makes that truth explicit somewhere else. And in closing, I want us to sort of land the plane there. Turn with me to the end of your New Testament to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, a critical verse on this particular subject. 
So near the end of the Bible, if you hit Revelation, just back up a few books into these short epistles. John's first epistle, and in chapter 5. Here we find an ordering to believing and being born of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. If you have the ESV or if you have the Legacy Standard Bible before you, it will read this way. Whoever believes that Jesus is, is the Christ has been born of God. It's a perfect tense verb. So let me just show you the grammar here. Whoever believes, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been perfect tense, born of God. So whoever is believing right now has in the past been born of God. So just for a minute, imagine you took all the believers in this room and you traced in their life back to the ve their very moment they believed. The, 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 the first millisecond of belief in your life or in that person's life. Then quote this verse. In that very first millisecond of belief, this was true. They had already been born of God. The new birth precedes belief. The new birth, we might say, causes belief. The new birth instantaneously, like a lightning bolt, wakes up a sinner out of his dead coma, and it brings them to new life in Christ. And the very first thing, the very first thing the now regenerate person does is believe. He's woken up. He can see. He comes alive. The first breath of the Christian life is belief. I mean, think about this. This is wonderful. This is wonderful because it places the work of salvation entirely upon God. It removes it all from us. Some people are scared by that. They're freaked out. Thinking, I don't have any control of this. But that's a glorious truth because that means we can't mess it up. It's all of God. Praise the Lord. We could quote Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. So Paul's right in 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why do we boast? Because he did it. We boast in him. We don't boast in ourselves. It's not our own mental capacities to figure these things out. We're not smarter than other people. God saved us by his grace. I mean, this is the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's so simple. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And guess what? That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Wonderful truth. The new birth is a gift from God. It comes from him. He causes us to be born again. It's a work of the Spirit of God, and the flesh profits nothing. And so this makes us all the more active in evangelism because we know we can go out and we can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and even know how hardened sinners may be in their unbelief, God can overcome their unbelief in a moment. He can save a Paul of Tarsus whenever he wants to. And he's just asked us to go out there and preach Christ. That's our job. And he will save whom he wills. So we submit to a God who's much bigger and greater than we are. So let's praise him together in prayer.